You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. I know that was a long passage, but the reason we have this read before anybody comes up here behind this pulpit is because we think it right both from a visual standpoint, but also to hear it read, that we are coming in behind the text of Scripture. That is, God's Word to us is living and active, and so I thank Cody for reading all of that. It's good for us to understand the picture of what God is doing before we start walking through it. That said, I do encourage you to turn in your own copies of God's Word, whether electronically or in the Pew Bible in front of you or your own Bibles. If you grab one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 12. But turn to Genesis 17, because as we walk through this, you can see it's a lot of text. I want you to be able to follow along with what God is doing as we walk through this. So I knew I was preparing a sermon for this weekend, and it's Memorial Day weekend in North Carolina. And I don't know about you, but when we think about growing up Memorial Day weekend in North Carolina, I think about pools opening and nice warm weather and jumping in and and playing for, for hours on hours. And yet, as the Lord would have it, we're not into that normal North Carolina Memorial Day weekend. It is nasty, cold, and rainy outside. So my word picture of a pool may not be quite as enticing as it would have been, but I still think helpful for our beginning this morning. But in thinking of a pool, think back with me to the first time that you learned to swim. If you've not learned to swim, don't don't raise your hand, but... Think back maybe for the other people that have learned how to swim the first time. The first time you were really able to go from one end of the pool to the other without stopping and putting your feet on the bottom of the pool. How how incredible that feeling was. But there's usually a time prior to that where you're kind of learning, right? And And you're bobbing around in the shallow section. Maybe your arms are making the swimming motion as you're learning to do that, but your feet are on the ground. But picture for a moment someone sitting to the side of the pool, and from a certain vantage point, it looks as though you are swimming. Though if they were able to see under the water, they would see in reality that you're doing nothing more than standing on the bottom of the pool. In the same way, for some in here this morning, from a certain vantage point, you may appear to be resting on the promises of God as assuredly as an Olympic swimmer would trust that they will remain afloat on top of the water. But underneath is the evidence of reality. And so maybe Sunday by Sunday, you or I look as though we are doing very well and depending on the, and trusting in the promises of God. But if someone were to look underneath the surface of our lives, they would not see faith. They would see self-effort. They wouldn't see trust in God's promises, but trust in our, own, in our own structures, in our own rule following. So how do we determine if someone's really swimming or not? You take them out of the shallow end, and you take them over to the deep section, and you say, jump in. And one of the evidences of, of, of someone who cannot truly swim is that they're not going to jump into the nine-foot section. For they know they really don't know what they're doing in swimming. In the same way, when God calls his people to move forward on some great venture of faith, 
Those who are not walking by faith in the shallow end will not jump into the deep waters of faith. For there it becomes evident to everyone else and to themselves that they are actually weak in their faith on the inside. But God is calling us both corporately as a church, individually to move into deeper and deeper waters of faith. Paul would use the language of not just simply continuing to drink milk, but learning how to eat meat. And so to walk by faith is to learn to receive the challenges to our faith. These, these times of where the Lord stretches us so that we may better learn how to move forward. Because the reality is when we're engaged with the Lord, we are, even, we are either moving forward and deeper in our faith or we are retreating backwards to the shallow section of our faith. And so as we've been tracing the lives of Abram and Sarai through these chapters from chapter 12 up until today... We've seen them both move forward in their faith as well as retreat back into self-effort and into impatience on the Lord. And yet when we come to chapter 17, the Lord once again meets Abram where he is. And so as we look across everything that Cody just read for us that we're going to look at today, we see that God expounds on his covenant with Abraham by announcing the coming birth of a son to both Abraham and Sarah. And he grants an outward sign of an inward reality of the heart in the sign of circumcision. That's the big picture of today. But what you and I need to know, what you and I need to believe, what you and I need to live in light of is that we can believe in the God of the impossible. A God whose promises are true and whose promises are everlasting. So we're going to learn four, four things about our God today. But as we come to this chapter, Abraham has been promised by way of covenant many wonderful things that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Yet if we're honest, Abraham's life has looked a little bit like a roller coaster. The highs of walking in faith, the lows of falling into sin. Even last week, we saw Abram and Sarai either become impatient with the Lord or waning in their faith. And they took things into their own hands because they must not have believed that God can do what he says he's going to do. But what Abraham needed to learn and what we too need to be learning and are hopefully learning through this study. While we've learned, while we've learned a lot of things, I hope one overarching truth that we've learned is that God does what he says he's going to do. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Even when we get in the way. Think all the way back to Genesis 3. God keeps his promises even when we get in the way. God keeps his promises even when we lack faith. So now in chapter 17, we're going to continue to see the unchanging goodness of our God. The unchanging goodness of our God. As he confirms his covenant with Abram through a sign that will be for Abram and all those after him. As we see in verse 1, Abraham is 99 years old when we encounter him in chapter 17. Don't miss these things. He was 75 when we first encountered him in chapter 12. And we talked about how then the people at that point were kind of settled. They knew what life was going to look like. They were happy where they were, and yet God says, leave that. 
24 years now since God had originally called him, we are here in chapter 17. 13 years since the birth of Ishmael that we just read about last week. By the way, I call those out because I think the Bible intentionally wants us to pause on that for a moment. I don't want us to miss those pointers. Some of you in this room are not even 24 years old. But many of us in this room, no matter how old we are, can become impatient when we wait on the Lord even for a handful of months, much less a year. And Abram and Sarai have been waiting for 24 years. But we need to know that the destinations are not the only goals God has for our relationship with him. That even in the learning to wait patiently, even in the learning how to choose faith over and over and over again when the things around you don't make sense, or even possibly that God, there's something in our lives that God needs to correct before he can show us what he has for us. So Abram's 99 years old. And when God comes to him, he gives us a beautifully pointed summation of this chapter, but even more so of the relationship God intends for us to have with him. God says, I am God Almighty. You live in my presence and be blameless. Now, over the course of our text this morning, we're going to see four names given, either renames or new names that we want to pay attention to. And the first one is right here in verse 1. God reveals a not-yet-mentioned title of himself, God Almighty, El Shaddai. El meaning God, Shaddai meaning might or meaning sufficiency. God is telling Abram, when he comes to Abram, he says, I am the God who is able to do all that I've said I will do in and through you. And the two demands God places on that is that he would live and walk before God, and he would be blameless. That is, that Abraham would seek to live a morally upright life before our God. And the reality is, God still interacts and desires to interact with his people in the same way. That we would recognize God as God, and that we would respond in faith that leads to obedience. So God comes to Abraham. And in verse 2, he says, I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly multiply you. Now, your translation may set up, or it may say confirm. I think confirm is probably more of what the text is getting at there. Because the covenant words have already been spoken to Abram at, in chapter 12. It's ratified and spoken again in chapter 15 as he is learning to trust in the Lord. And now God appears to Abram again, even after a lack of faith in chapter 16, to confirm God's unchanging goodness toward Abram. And he restates the promises once again. And verse 3 is is awesome. Because the only proper posture in response to being in the presence of God, the Bible says, then Abram fell face down. It doesn't say he speaks. He's not casual in the way he engages with God. But he's reverent. He's showing honor. And he's showing fear in the face of El Shaddai. Abram begins with worship. And then God expounds on the covenant. He tells us that the origin of the covenant and the character of the covenant are both divine. First, the origin of the covenant is divine. Verse 4. But God says, as for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become a father of nations. Abraham can trust in the promises being made to him by God because it is God himself that is making them. Now, maybe you've been in this position before. Maybe you've gone to buy a car and get a loan, 
Maybe you've gone to rent a house or rent an apartment and you go to sign it and the, the bank or the landlord says, hey, man, I'm sure you mean well, but either based on your financial position or maybe on your credit history, I, I really need there to be someone else that in case you don't hold up your end of the bargain, as in you don't pay me, that there's someone else who is able and willing to co-sign this loan who will pay, who will pay it for you. God doesn't need a co-signer because when God Almighty speaks, he himself is able to do what he says he was do. So the, the covenant is divine in origin. It's also divine in its character. It's about the things of God. Verse 5, our second name. So then God says, you will no longer be Abram, for your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. Now the name Abram means the father of many. Seems like an unfortunate name for a man who goes 86 years with zero kids. And in the last 13 years of his life so far, he has one. And his name means a father of many. Can't you imagine how frustrating that must have been for Abram? To be named something that is so obviously false. And then God has the audacity to rename him Abraham. Which means the father of a multitude. Can you imagine the snickering? Can you imagine when he went back and he started interacting with people in his clan or the, or the servants that worked for him. And he says, hey, by the way, don't call me Abram anymore. Call me Abraham. Or he goes to his wife and says, by the way, don't call me Abram. I'm Abraham now. And can you just imagine the look on her face of like, are you kidding me? Wasn't your name already enough of, uh, of, of a sadness to you that now you want us to call you a father of a multitude? Even something so much more far-fetched. But man, I really love the end of verse 5. Your translation may say, I will make. I think the perfect tense there really is better rendered. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. The beauty of that is God names him father of a multitude. And then he states, for I have made you what I have now called you. Not simply that I will do that, but that I have done that. Because it is God Almighty, it is El Shaddai, the one who is sufficient and has all the might to see to it that his will is done. So when he speaks about what has not yet happened, it's as good as it has already happened. Our God names Abraham something that seems impossible in the moment. But he does so as if it has already taken place. The God who created the world from nothing but his word can be trusted to bring about the promise to Abraham when there is nothing currently present to fulfill that promise. He made the world from nothing. How big of a thing is it to give him a child when he doesn't have one? And then in verse 7, we see for the first time God expounding on this covenant promise that's not just between God and Abraham, but it's between Abraham's descendants. And not just a few of their generations, but a permanent covenant for all of the offspring after him. For the first time, we see that God's covenant is an everlasting covenant with Abraham and all who will come in Abraham's line. And in verse 8, it says again, he promises them the land of Canaan. To be a permanent possession and he will be their God. The driving force in 7 and 8 is the fact that God will be their God permanently. 
No matter how far Abraham and his descendants will fall into sin, no matter the lengths at which they will flee to idols, which we know they will do if you continue to read the story, no matter any of that, God will not abandon those who are truly his. Friends, no matter how far you feel away from God today, no matter how filthy or beat down in your sin you may be, if you are a child of God in Christ, God has made a permanent covenant promise to you to be your God everlasting. And the response of Abraham and the response that we ought to have is to walk in the presence of God and to be blameless before him. No matter the ups and downs of Abraham's faith, no matter the moving into the deeper and then retreating back to the shallows, God's goodness remains unchanged. But we also learn from, about God today that God's salvation is transformative. He doesn't just leave us where we are. And in verses 9 through 17, we see this sign of the covenant, circumcision. That God speaks to Abraham and he says, to, for, you and your off, uh, to, for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenants. In verse 10, every one of your males must be circumcised. Let me quickly give you what's happening here in 9 through 14. Four provisions apply to circumcision. First, it applies to every male in Abraham's household. Whether they were born to Abraham, whether they're part of his extended family, or whether they're part of the ones who were acquired, all of them, any male, is to be circumcised. Just a quick aside that I don't want you to miss. From the very beginning of God's salvific work here, those who are not in Abraham's lineage, those who are not a part of Abraham's family, can still be brought into covenant relationship with God which is good news for you and me because I am not by heritage Jewish. And yet the promise is still to those who can be grafted in here through circumcision and faith and in and, and the New Testament faith through baptism, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But even from the very beginning, those who are not a part of Abraham's heritage, those who are not a part of his background can be grafted in, but every single one of the males must be circumcised. Secondly, that the sign of a covenant is just that. It is a sign. It is not the covenant itself. There is no covenant of circumcision. The, the sign is a sealing sign of something that has already happened, of something, a covenant that God has already made with Abraham. Abraham and those after him will respond in faithful obedience, but the circumcision itself doesn't procure anything. The promises aren't gained because of circumcision. The promises are gained because God is the one who promised the, that he would do those things. The blessings are received because of the God who makes them, not because of their actions. Thirdly, circumcision for those born into Abraham's family, though, were to be done on the eighth day, which is the kid's first week birthday, if you will, if you count their birthday and the next week on the eighth day of life. Now, to be honest, circumcision was not unheard of or even all that uncommon in the ancient Near East. But often it was a rite of passage for a man coming of a certain age or in preparation of their wedding. What made it unique here is that it didn't focus on the human action preparing men to father children. Instead, it emphasized the child's intended purpose to trust in the promises of God for life and for abundance. And lastly, 
Lastly, if a male was not circumcised, he would be cut off from the people of God. For he had broken, or really and truly, he had not even entered into covenant relationship with God. In other words, what was not on the table is that you could not be kind of around the people of God. You could not be pseudo part of the people of God. You could not enjoy the blessings of the people of God if you were not actually a part of the people of God. And that's important for us this morning. Because if you're here this morning and you've been around the people of God, you've been a, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've been here a long time, maybe you've come even to Covenant Hope for a long time, but you yourself have never submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ, and you think that having these relationships or enjoying the music we sing or hearing these stories from God's Word, you're gaining some blessing from that by coming here and there but not really being a part of the people of God, that somehow you're gaining something. I do mean this out of love. But when you die and you stand before God, and he judges you as not being in Christ, you will be cut off from the people of God. You will be separated. And all this supposed blessing you think you're getting now by kind of playing at church or just enjoying being a part of it, but not really being submitted to Christ, all of that that you think you gained will be nothing. Because God takes very seriously those who are in covenant relationship with him and those who are not. Now God makes all these wonderful promises to Abraham. He promised him progeny, he promised him land, and most importantly, he promised to be his God. And he required that they would be in covenant relationship with him, that they would walk by faith, And they would walk in obedient fellowship with him. God wanted his people to know that they were a set apart people. That they were different from the world around them. But he also wanted them to be a remembering people. We talked about that in chapter 12 when Abraham set up these altars. So people would pass by and he would remember. Well, If you're a male and you're circumcised, it's hard to forget. That's precisely part of the point. We're a people who are so often forgetful, and God wanted his people not only to be set apart, but to be a remembering people. Not only that they were an Israelite, but they were part of God's people, and that he was their God. Just a quick aside, because this comes up sometimes. What does circumcision mean for us today? If you're a Christian, non-Jew Christian, do you have to be circumcised? Remember the second point, the sign of circumcision was just that, it was a sign, it was not the covenant itself. Physical circumcision saved no one. In fact, Paul would later talk about the fact that those who were a part of Abraham were really actually not true Jews. They may have, heritage-wise, they may have biologically been Jew, but they were not actually a part of the people of God. But they were circumcised. Circumcision in and of itself means nothing. It's always from the very beginning, as we've been talking about, that it is faith that enters one into relationship, covenant relationship with God. Abraham believed, chapter 15, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Circumcision ultimately pointed up from an outward thing to point to what's going on in, inwardly. Moses said that God would circumcise the hearts of his people so that they might be devoted to him. Paul picks this language up and he adds that circumcision of the heart In other words, being inwardly set apart to God by the Spirit, that evidences salvation and fellowship with God in Romans 2 and Romans 4. 
and even sometimes called an uncircumcised heart, those who are a part of, from God. Before Christ came, circumcision was the outward sign of what was supposed to be an inward reality of one's relationship to God. But when Christ came, no longer was the outward expression of circumcision necessary. For the sign of the new covenant is a Christian, in Christ is a believer's baptism by water. So spiritually speaking, circumcision is of no use to you today. In fact, this became a really big deal in the early church. There were Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, and there were Jews who had come to Christ, and I think well-meaning, who said, but if they're going to be part of the people of God, these Gentiles have to be circumcised. And so there was lots of disagreement about that, and Paul writes about it in multiple places. But specifically in Galatians 5, he has some pretty clear words. For he says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What's most important for us to remember is that God's salvation changes who we are. It sets us apart from the world and it calls us to walk blamelessly before our God. God's salvation transforms us. Thirdly, God's blessings are boundless. Verse 15, we introduce our third name. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarah, I don't call her Sarah. For she will be, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. What is one of the titles you can have of a woman who gives birth to kings? A princess which is precisely what Sarah's name means. Abraham hears all of this. In verse 17, Abraham again falls face down, but here it says, then he laughed to himself. And he said, can a, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can a Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. At everything God had just spoken to him, Abraham laughs. Now look, much has been debated about the laughter of Abraham. Is he laughing out of lack of faith? Is he laughing just simply out? He's overwhelmed and so he just, you know, just kind of comes out. Here's the thing. We know the end of the story, right? If you've been with us or you've read ahead in your Bibles, you know how this is going to play out. You know that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. If you've watched a movie of a book that you've already read that they make it into a movie and you're watching the movie and there's this massive plot twist coming up and you're watching the movie with a friend who has never read the book and then you're sitting back knowing that the plot twist is coming and so you're experiencing the movie in a very different way than your friend who is experiencing the moment, movie moment by moment as the things are happening. Well, that's kind of what it is right now for us. We, we've read the book. We know how the story's going to play out. But for just a moment, put yourself in, in Abraham's sandals. He's experiencing what's happening as it's coming moment by moment. Just try to stand where he is. Try to think of as it comes to him as a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And listening to the most incredible things being said to him. God tells him he's going to be the father of nations. From Sarah. Looks at Sarah and there aren't any kids. And kings are going to come from him. 
And he looks at his own body, as the Apostle Paul would say, with his body as good as dead. And his wife, not much better. Okay, that last part's a pretty loose translation of Romans 4. But it does say that his body's as good as dead and hers not doing well either. And on top of that, Abraham's thinking about all that God has said about this land of Canaan. It's full of, of rebel and, and marauding groups who have no interest in God Almighty. These promises were unbelievably incredible. And from the human perspective, if we could write one word over all of these promises, if we're putting ourselves in Abraham's sandals, what is the one word we would write over all of these promises from our perspective? Impossible. It is impossible. But friends, impossible is not in the vocabulary of our God. And it's questionable whether impossible is in the vocabulary of faith at all. And yet, we have decided in our own hearts that so many things are impossible. There are people that we've never invited to church. For we don't see why they would come or that they would even hear the gospel. Why? Because from our perspective, it's impossible that they would ever come. We've given up on some loved ones who don't share our faith in Christ. We've ceased praying for them because we think it's impossible that they will turn to Christ after all of these years. Yet impossible doesn't exist with our God. But what some of us need in our lives, more than anything else, is a few impossibilities. To stretch our faith, to push us to the deeper end of the pool of faith where our feet don't touch, where we can't rest any longer on our own strength, but only on the Lord. Abraham wasn't ready in the beginning of chapter 17 to be the father of a multitude of nations who through those would bless the entire world. He wasn't ready. He was still swimming in the shallow end. And God, just like us, uh, that he does to us, Abraham needed to be stretched by what seemed impossible. Now look, going all the way back to Abraham's laugh, he fell face down. His default posture was worship. My picture in my mind is he fell face down. He, he, he started with worship. And then as he's lay, his head is down, he starts to think about all these incredibly wonderful promises. And they don't make sense. And so he lets out a laugh. And even beyond that, he starts to reason that maybe I can give God some kind of counterproposal with Ishmael. So I think if I'm honest, it's a genuinely mixed response. To me, it sounds a lot like the father of the child who was possessed by a demon when he cries out to the Lord, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And our God is good and strong enough to handle that response. Default with worship, it's okay to ask. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That said, reasoning with God, though he's big enough to handle it, though he's patient enough to hear it, at the end is all futility. Because God always already has a plan that he is working out in us. So God says, no. You will have another son, but this time it will be by your wife, Sarah, which is what my plan was to start with. And his name's going to be Isaac, our fourth name. And the name Isaac can be translated laughter in the fact that Abraham and Sarah in a little bit is going to laugh. Or it could also mean that God smiles. And I think both are fitting. 
For as they watch Isaac grow up, and sometimes they're watching him run around and play, and they laugh to themselves and go, I just never understood how God was going to do this. But it can also mean God smiles or God shows favor, which he does when he promises that through Isaac, all of these promises, all of these blessings will come through him and his generations. But Ishmael, in verse 20, will be blessed because he's of Abraham, because Abraham pleaded for him. He's going to become the father of, of 12 tribes, 12 leaders. And they will become a great nation as well, but they won't enter by faith into covenant relationship with uh, God. In verse 21 and 22, for the very first time in the 24 years that God has been interacting with Abraham, God gives Abraham a timeline. Chapter 12, leave, and I'll show you where, where I've got you. Chapter 15, you're going to have a son by your own flesh. Now for the first time. Sarah will bear you a son at this time next year. And when he finished talking with him, God withdrew. And about a year from then, Sarah would give birth to Isaac. Abraham would be 100 years old. Sarah would be 90 years old. And as crazy as that sounds to us, our God is a God who makes bold promises because he keeps them. All the while stretching our faith for his glory and our good. His blessings are boundless, not bound by time, not bound by depth, not bound by the age of the people he's working through. His blessings are boundless. And then our last section this morning, God's grace is personal. While it may not sound like it at the forefront, circumcision was actually a personal grace given to Abraham and those in his tribe. It was given them to set them apart, right? The idea of setting apart is because the wrath of God is going to be poured out on people who are, who are not a part of the people of God. And so there's salvation in the setting apart. But it's also given as a perpetual reminder of whose they were and of the God they were covenanted to. And so in response to the grace that God had shown him, that God had spoken to him, that God would show him, Abraham acts out of his faith immediately. I love that. Abraham, verse 23, took his son Ishmael, those born of his household, or purchased every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Look, you don't go through the pain of circumcision at 99 years old readily, quickly, Unless you believe wholeheartedly that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he's going to do. Abraham acts in faith. He obeyed because he first trusted. And I love here how the Bible highlights the expediency and the extent of the obedience. We've told our children from the time they were very young that delayed obedience is not obedience. We don't count to three in our house. Why? Because sinful hearts wait until about 2.5 before they start to respond. Right? You better get up to your room right now before I count to three. One, two, oh, then they start moving. Delayed obedience is not obedience. And like many of you, we're trying to instruct their hearts. We're trying to teach them that genuine heartfelt obedience is done What? My kids should know this, done right away, done all the way, and done with a cheerful heart. Anything less than that is surface level activity at best. Not heartfelt obedience 
that is out of love for the one giving the instruction. And here we see Abraham, in light of who is speaking and the love he has for the God who is speaking, he responds in obedience right away that very day. And he responds all the way because he takes all the males in his household and he circumcises them that day. Well, not only did God give Abraham the sign of circumcision as a personal sign for him, but the God that sometimes feels very far away from us. That happens in your life, I'm sure. Abraham and Sarah, we're reading these as successive chapters, but they're 24 years of of God interacting with them. I'm sure he felt far away from them. But God visits them in a very personal way to confirm, mainly for Sarah, his promise to bring forth a child from her womb. Look at the beginning of chapter 18. And for the sake of time, I'm going to quickly summarize the story. Cody's already read it for us. But Abraham is standing at the entrance of his tent. This isn't a tent that you and I would use to go camping. This is a massive Bedouin tent in the middle of the desert. And he's standing at the entrance of his tent, and he sees these three journeymen walking, and he runs out to meet them. And he and he begs them or he beseeches them to, to stop and to come and, to, and let him give them some water and some rest and a snack. Although he doesn't give them a snack. He goes back to his wife and says, hey, I need some food real fast. And he goes out to the field and he grabs the choice lamb. And, he, and then they go and they prepare it. And he, Abraham goes and he serves it. He doesn't eat it with them. He serves it. Man, what hospitality that may look like. And he stands there as they eat. Now, who are these three visitors? What an interesting, interesting story. Look, there have been a lot of different theories on that. But I think what's most obvious from the text, what's, what the church has historically understood, is this is a theophany. Uh, what that means is this is a manifestation of God the Father temporarily taking on a human form so he can interact with his creation. And with him are two angels. Part of the reason I say that, by the way, is at the end of chapter 18, when God is finished interacting with Abraham and Sarah, it says the Lord departs. But the beginning of chapter 19, these two angels go on to Sodom. Or to Sodom. But, but really, let, let's be careful. Let's not get so caught up in those details that we miss the beauty and the wonder of how the God of the universe, God Almighty, El Shaddai, interacts with Abraham in such a very personal way. He eats at his table. He visits him. That's why later Abraham is called a friend of God. But verse 9 and 10, now Sarah is included in to the covenant promises. They ask where she is, and he says, you over there in the tent. And what would have happened culturally is she would not have been out there at the table with them, at these men. She would have been standing at the entrance of the tent. She was within earshot so she could serve as a good hostess would do, but not in the conversation. So the Lord in chapter, in verse 10, repeats what he's already said to Abraham, I believe, for Sarah's benefit. They're aware of her listening. This personal, gracious God who so often meets us right where we are knew that it would be for her benefit to hear the covenant promise of a child directly. For her encouragement, but also for her challenge to challenge her unbelief, to take her deeper into waters of faith. But in verse 11, we're reminded of how crazy all of this sounds. To the point where Sarah laughs to herself. 
Now, while she was in, within earshot of, of the men, that they would not have been able to be within earshot of her kind of laughing to herself. Can I really have a baby when I'm old? After I'm worn out, after my Lord is old, will I have delight? It's not overly important to the story, I, but I'm not sure that her laughter is as mixed with faith as Abraham's was because of the way the Lord reprimands her. But I think we can at least understand it. For all the stuff she's now hearing, she and her husband are old. They apparently haven't been physically intimate in years. And yet now, after all of this time, this person says that she's going to have a child in about a year? It just sounds too crazy. But two things quickly we need to see from this interaction. The first is that our God is an omniscient God. He knows all things. He knew Sarah's name in verse 9. He knew that she laughed to herself even when it would not have, been, it would not have made physical sense that he would have heard that. But let's not miss something. When we think about the omniscience of God, we tend to think about God knowing all things. And we think about it in terms of he knows all the facts of the world. He knows all the counterfactuals that are possible. He knows how the future is going to unfold. And all of that is true. But often what we fail to contemplate is that his knowing all things means that he knows us. Like really, really knows you and me. Down to our very core. Better than we know ourselves. And he's a patient, caring, loving father enough to sometimes challenge our unbelief. So that we may deepen our dependence on him for our own good. And secondly, this interaction shows us that we learn, reminded again, that God is a God of the impossible. For he challenges her, or challenges Abraham, but her indirectly, is anything impossible for God? It's a theme we've already seen, the theme that the rest of the Bible uses. And we need that reminder and we need it often. And how could? How could anything be impossible for God? When you're the God of the universe, when you've created everything by your word, when, you, when nothing happens outside of your control, when, when you hold the power and the might that all of history is moving towards you, it's your intended outcome, how could anything be impossible for you? It just can't be. Now look, Sarah denies laughing. The Lord challenges her on her lie. But what Sarah and Abraham needed to learn, what you and I continue to need to learn, is that nothing is impossible for God. That's the big idea out there. But if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you, which means God, the Holy Spirit indwells you, which means if nothing is impossible for God, then that means nothing that God has called us to will be impossible for us to participate in, for us to see if he's calling us to it. This community, one we prayed for one of the neighborhoods even this morning, there are more and more people moving in month by month who do not know the name of Jesus, who have never stepped foot in a church building before. Yet God has purposed that his church will be a light on a hill, will be calling people to repent in faith, And that even communities and cities, maybe even states and countries, would turn from their sin and turn to the one true God. But man, how easy is that to say in a room like this on a Sunday morning? And how difficult is it for us to believe that when we walk out these doors and we remember and we recognize the brokenness of this world? Do we really believe God is able to save? Or maybe for you it's worse than that. Maybe it's not that you believe God can't, but that he won't. Because maybe you and I have thought we have figured out how this story is going to play out in our own country. 
And so we read ahead in the Bible and we think we've got it all figured out. And so it's not that we don't think God can. We just think he won't. And if that's true, I pray that we repent of that today. And that again, we would see the God of Genesis 17 and 18. Our God is a good, a gracious, a patient, an omniscient, an almighty God who does what it says can't be done. And he does it so often in a way that boggles our mind. We worship a God of the impossible. And it's for his glory and for our benefit that he acts in such a way that we cannot possibly explain away what he is doing. Whether it's in our lives or whether it's the lives of the people in our community. Some have said that so much of the rest of the Bible can be understood if we understand Genesis chapter 12 through 17. For instance, we can answer the question, how can we be included in the covenant promises of God that were made to Abraham and to the Israelites if I'm not Jewish? I already mentioned that real circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. And we enter into covenant relationship with God by faith. But at the very beginning, God had intended that ultimately what would come from Abraham's line is Jesus Christ. And it would, he would be the descendant of Abraham that thereby the rest of the world would be blessed. And if we are in Christ, then we are an heir of Abraham. Paul writes in Galatians 3, if you're in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or Romans 4, the promise is according to grace in order uh, to, all, to be guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So when God said over 4,000 years ago to Abraham, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations, he opened the way that any of us, no matter the nation we belong to, no matter your heritage, no matter your background, you can be an heir of the promises of God to Abraham through the work, the life, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ. And you enter into relationship now just like you did then in faith of the God who made the covenant promises. Salvation has always been by faith. Yet salvation calls us to be set apart. But what is clear, hopefully we're seeing, that God never intends to leave us where we are. Each time God came to Abraham, he moved him further along. He challenged him to go deeper in his faith. Look, I know there's not as many of these anymore. But when I was growing up, there were these awesome swimming pools, not like some of the ones today. You know, the one, you would go and you would, one of the, the, the most fun things about learning to swim and be able to go into the deep end is to be able to jump off the diving board. And I don't mean those little rectangle hard pieces that kind of bounce this much. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those really cool wide ones that went way out into the water and you could really do crazy tricks off of it that scared your mom half to death. There was fun, there was enjoyment in swimming in the deep end. But in the same way in faith, God wants us to learn to swim in the deep end. Yeah, it can be scarier at times, for sure, when we can't touch the bottom in our own strength. But also think of all the wonderful ways and all the wonderful things that God can accomplish in and through us, rather than when we just stay in the shallows. So this morning, may we thank our God that he never leaves us where he finds us, that, he, that we praise him today for his goodness, for his salvation, for his blessings, and for his grace. Pray with me this morning. Almighty God.
the God who is mighty, the God who is sufficient, the God who made promises that seemed unthinkable, that seemed incredible, that seemed to make no sense from our human perspective. Yet, God, we have read the rest of the story. And we do know that you kept your promises, every single one of them. And God, we are here today to worship you because ultimately what came from Abraham's line was Jesus, born to a virgin, the son of man taking on flesh to live the perfect life we couldn't live. Ultimately, though, put on a cross, our sin put upon him. And God, you pouring out your wrath on him instead of us deemed that sacrifice as enough. And even though he was buried, he is not dead any longer, but lives forevermore. And you have promised that all who enter into relationship with you by way of faith in Christ can inherit likewise these wonderful promises of you to be our God. Not just today, not just for the rest of our life, but forever. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you meet us where we are. We thank you that you're a God who is transcendent that you've created all things, but that you're also a God who shows us personal grace. And none better than the picture of Christ taking on this lowly human flesh for your glory and for our good. God, we thank you for your word today. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.